Hey, everyone. It's Vanessa, and I'm here to talk to you about Noom. Noom is a personalized weight loss plan. It's not just one size fits all. It takes into account your dietary restrictions, your medical issues, and any other personal needs. It's like a psychology plan. Just it meets you where you are. And it also recognizes that losing weight is really a mental process. It starts with your motivation and with your brain. Noom's approach is also grounded in science. They've published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles that describe their methods and effectiveness. So stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. You can sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes. It's available to buy now wherever books are sold. Campsite Media. So Kelly's case had been overturned. At the time, an assistant Essex County prosecutor said his office decided to seek dismissal because, and we're quoting from a newspaper article here, too many obstacles had been placed in the way of a successful retrial. And so from there... One would assume that the people who had accused Kelly, from the investigators to the parents to the prosecutors, would think they had made an error. Might even be ashamed. That was a snippet from the musical Sweeney Todd to illustrate this point. But this sort of self-flagellation is far from what happened. Among this group, faith remained. Even if Kelly was not guilty of all the peanut butter and naked piano playing, had she not at least done something awful to some of the children? We got in touch with Glenn Goldberg, one of the prosecution's lawyers, to ask what he thought. Found beyond a reasonable doubt that uh, some 50 children or so were, were molested by Kelly Michaels. So I, I feel that I've done my job. I, I proved the case to a jury who saw all the evidence, both for and against Kelly Michaels, and they found her guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. He was not interested in talking to us further. And he was not alone. There were still some other academics and other experts who maintained a belief in Kelly's guilt. And the parents? They did not wake up one morning and realize they had made a mistake in pursuing Kelly. Much more often, they believed what their eyes had shown them. Their own children, after investigators talked to them, being unable to eat peanut butter because they must have been scarred by the memory of Kelly spreading it on herself. Their own children sleeping in their doorways, refusing to go to their own beds. Patricia Crowley, the food editor who wrote a book about the case, two years before Kelly was released, said this to the New York Times. We'll go to the parole board, so we'll keep her behind bars forever. Maybe if she had said, I'm sorry for the way I screwed up your kids, Maybe I could have found it in my heart to feel some compassion. But she didn't, and I have no sympathy for her. Many parents kept on their path of healing from the terrible acts she had allegedly committed. Healing, even if it was not entirely clear what they were healing from. When we spoke with the father of one of the first children who accused Kelly Michaels, you heard from him in episode two, he had this to say about her. By the way, you'll hear Vanessa in this tape because she's the one who interviewed him. Do you think Kelly Michaels is guilty to this day? Personally, yes. Do you want her back in prison? 
accomplish anything. First, I wouldn't want her in, in jail, despite what she did. Hearing these different opinions, I'm struck by how the concept of truth, of what we can ever really know for sure, seems so subjective. There's a whole branch of philosophy dedicated to this, epistemology. It's the theory of knowledge, how we know things, whether by reason or physical perception. Like, there's a table in front of you. How do you know? Your eyes can see it, but can you trust them? You feel it, but don't you also feel things you can't empirically sense? Like sadness? Why do you think it's a table and not a horse, which also has four legs and a flat top? Of course, this example sounds sort of silly, but the uncertainty about what you can know and how feels so relevant to Kelly's story. Because even though her case was overturned and the charges dropped, different people still see different truths. It's as though they're looking at her through a camera, but their hands have touched the camera lens. And now the image is distorted by their own blurry fingerprints. From Sony Music Entertainment and Campside Media, this is Infamous. I'm Natalie Robemed, and this is the fourth and final episode of our series, Kelly and the Satanic Panic. So last episode, we covered Kelly's time in prison and the fight by her family, journalists, and lawyers to get her out. This episode, we pick up with Kelly as she tries to put her life back together, and the parents and children attempting to do the same. So as we said, Kelly was let out of prison in 1993, but there were rules around her release. For Michael's family, today's victory was a sweet one. I just want to get her out of here right now, as soon as I can. The court, uh, the court's had a good day today. Michael's is to have no contact with children under 13 years old. She can't be in New Jersey unless for a court appearance and cannot have a passport. This almost goes without saying, but Kelly was deeply traumatized. PTSD, yes. The fast talking, I couldn't sit down. There were years I couldn't sleep, still struggled to even sit in a chair. I would be with friends or family and say, why don't you sit down, Kelly? Why, why do you have to pace around? Like, I didn't know why, because back when I got out in the early 1990s, it wasn't even really a thing to understand. So why can't I sleep? Why do I have like nightmares? Why am I always antsy and hypervigilant? Well, duh, you know, but it wasn't so easy to fix because you get hardwired for the next shooter drop. It's like a cost of war. Like so many people, she'd gotten deeply used to and damaged by prison. Leaving the bars behind, she felt like one of the hobbits returning to the Shire after their epic odyssey to Mordor. Hobbits come back to the Shire, like, do we really have that really happen? <laughs> Just really, you know, and back to the greenery and the calm, you know, being free, opening the door, like, no one's stopping me. I can just walk out the door, just walk, and no one's stopping me. Uh, you know, I have to ask permission for toilet paper, or I don't have to get permission to get a shower. Kelly had been barred from the state of New Jersey following her initial indictment and wasn't allowed in until more than a year after her conviction was overturned. She spent that time in New York, in a sort of strange purgatory. The person I was is gone. I wasn't that 23-year-old person that started the Odyssey. And I had, you know, got out as a person in her early, entering her early 30s. I was not going to be an actress in New York. That was gone. People now associate my name with this whole ugly, bizarre mess. And you've been wrong. You want justice, right? But you can spend your whole life chasing that. It's elusive and you'll never get that in this life. At first, Kelly tried. 
She filed a civil suit against New Jersey, seeking damages from what she said was unconstitutional conviction and imprisonment. It was dismissed. And Kelly tried to move on. One of my lawyer friends said, the best revenge is a happy life. Tolkien said justice and healing aren't the same thing. And healing is preferable. One is more attainable than the other. Justice is elusive and, and never really satisfactory in this life. Healing can only come from suffering and patience. And when you are in the process of healing, justice is an afterthought. Suffering and patience, that's what Kelly believed would help her heal. And when you think about it, that sounds exactly right. So she tried to focus on that rather than justice, on living a normal, happy life. She got married, had kids, seven in total, moved to a farm, maybe it even looked like the Shire, with bucolic rolling hills and green wherever the eye could see. And my healing process was creating like this happy world for them where they could play outside. And we had goats one time and chickens and they could just like be away from the ugliness, which I had experienced in such an intimate level, such a devastating level of the worst of humanity. I didn't want any ugliness. And we didn't have a TV in the early days. I just wanted them to be happy and, play, and I homeschooled and play outside and um, keep them from ugliness of, of the world. Even though they didn't have a TV, people from TV programs came to talk to her. And Kelly had to explain to her kids why these reporters were in their house. I did interviews where the kids were, my oldest kids were small. My husband had said at the time that your mom was accused of things she didn't do. Why would accuse mom? I mean, your kids are young, you're just mom. There's a strange symmetry to this image. I can just picture Kelly, now a mother of her own kids, kneeling down to explain gently in simple terms that she had been accused of something she didn't do. Something awful. Like how I imagined years earlier, a frightened parent in Maplewood, having just hung up a call with another scared mother, ushering their child over and kneeling down to ask, had Miss Kelly ever hurt them? These parents loved their children. They would have died for their children. So you have to ask, what the hell happened here? What is the possible explanation for why these children told lies about Kelly? And why the parents still believe those lies? The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town. To The Swan, where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently, The Big Flop looked at The Swan, a competition show between women who were hoping to transform their physical appearance. The problem? The women were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. It all led to trauma for the contestants and terrible reviews. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. Thank you. 
Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. All the meals are chef-crafted, dietitian approved they're always fresh, never frozen, and unbelievably, they're ready to go in just two minutes. You've got more than 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. That's not including any of the 60-plus add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. That's right, no dishes. And they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime, like if you decide to go on vacation or something. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com infamous50 and use code infamous50 to get 50% off. That's code infamous50 at factormeals.com infamous50 to get 50% off. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So throughout this series, we've talked a lot about good and evil, these seemingly binary moral opposites. But when you look at what caused good mothers and fathers to believe Kelly was evil when they were coming from a place of love with their children, you find the answer in an area that is not at all black and white. It's squishy and fungible and constantly under construction. Human memory. We talked to Carol Tavris, a social psychologist, about memory to try and understand it better and understand it in the context of the 1980s. Memory is an yeah. amalgam of many things. The event that happened, whether or not we rehearsed it and talked about it afterward, it's influenced by subsequent retellings of that event every time we retell a memory, we embellish it a little, we modify it a little, we add a little zutz to it to make it a little more interesting. Carol has thought a lot about the satanic panic cases and why they happened as they did. And with each telling, our memory changes, uh, becomes a little more rigid. Photographs of that we see later of that fifth birthday party affect us. Other people's recollections affect us. Our own changing experiences affect us. Teenagers who are furious at their parents, I hate them, I don't ever want them in the house again, I can't stand them, let me get out of this place. And then you interview them 10 or 20 years later and they say, in my adolescence, my mom and I got along just fabulously. We had no problems at all whatsoever. Our memories are more influenced by how we feel about things now than about what might actually have happened then. Now, at first, the kids at We Care couldn't remember much. Patricia Crowley, the woman who wrote an entire book about the ordeal called Not My Child, well, her child even called herself Forgetful Jones, which is a Sesame Street character whose thing is, he forgets things. Gee, you know, it does seem like something's missing. Now, don't tell me. I remember. I'm good at remembering. Oh, no, you're not. You forget all the time. That's why they call you Forgetful. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> Forgetful. The father of one of the early accusers said this about his child. He remembered nothing. He, he, was, he would, couldn't even put him on a witness stand. Now, I want you to think for a second about what you can remember from nursery school. From being three or four or five years old, the age of the kids in this case. Maybe you remember nothing. 
but perhaps if you try hard enough, there's a flash of a Lion King lunchbox, rainbow laces in your sneakers, the feeling of careening down a green slide, its inside smelling like ripe plastic. But do you actually remember any of that? Or is it just what you've seen in photographs? Or what you've been told happened? Very young children tend to experience source amnesia. They don't know if mommy or daddy told them this, or if somebody else did, or where it came from. Where it came from. Did it happen to me, or did I just hear about it from somebody else? And it's very easy to confuse um, what happened from what I heard happen. And it's not just that kids might have been repeating things they'd heard from other sources. They actually could have had memories implanted in them. One researcher, Elizabeth Loftus, has studied the phenomenon extensively. False memories can be implanted. Elizabeth Loftus, in her famous Lost in the Mall studies, where you basically implant the suggestion, here's something that happened to you, now tell me about it. So what we now know is that if the effort to implant a memory in you is specific and detailed and plausible and likely, then you're more likely to say, hmm, you know what, I do remember being lost in the mall. As we talked about in previous episodes, the children at We Care Nursery were talked to by their parents. Then they were brought into the Big Grey Church and were interviewed over and over and over by investigators. Their memories shaped and reshaped like Play-Doh. And with the anatomical dolls and the leading questions, their stories began to change. Suddenly, they were parroting back information from their parents or jockeying to see who could say more. So why? Why were all these testimonies taken as gospel? Stick with me here for a moment. Carol says that it has a lot to do with probably the most influential psychologist of the 20th century, Sigmund Freud. Freud's biggest legacy is this idea of the unconscious, that there's this subterranean layer of beliefs and desires we don't even know about, just bubbling below the surface of our personalities. The Freudian notion of repression is widespread, popular, intuitively logical, and wrong. It's the idea that everything that happens to us is somehow recorded in our minds. Freud's belief, which was passed down to a whole generation of psychoanalysts, was that with the right therapy, you could tap into the unconscious. And from the unconscious, you could unearth recovered memories. And in the 80s, everyone was aware that recovered memories were real, particularly well-off professional women in therapy, like a lot of moms sending their kids to daycare were. Now, Carol may sound a bit brusque here, but this is what she believes. So... What began to happen as recovered memory became a rising method among so many psychotherapists as a way of giving an explanation to women who had all the problems of being women, which women have in every generation. I'm unhappy with my body. I'm unhappy with my sexuality. My husband isn't doing the dishes. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what I'm doing in this world. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm troubled. I don't like myself. I don't feel self-confident. It's the 
criterion list every decade. Women come forward with this list. This is not news. What is news is that there's a new explanation for it just about every decade. Mm -hmm. And so starting in the 80s, a woman would go in uh, for therapy because she was depressed and anxious. And the therapist would say, well, you know, those are all symptoms of having been sexually abused as a child because this was the new explanation du jour. And the client would say, no, you know, no, I had a fine dad. You know, no, I, I wasn't sexually abused. The thing is, in the 80s, that wasn't necessarily an acceptable answer. Well, the therapist would say, your symptoms are the symptoms of a woman who's been sexually abused. If you can't remember it, it must mean that you have repressed the memory. This was the Freudian legacy the idea that anything that happens to us is somehow buried in there. It's buried in your brain. And now you're a young woman and you're depressed and your therapist, this person is telling you that you have the symptoms of having been sexually abused. How many women are going to say, I'm out of here. You know, Sorry, I'm going to find another therapist. And so we began to see this emergence of women claiming that they must have been sexually abused in childhood, only they repressed the memory. Repressed memories. That's what the kids were finding in their minds when they accused Kelly after at first not remembering anything. And since professional moms were having this experience, surely it made sense that their own children were just surfacing the same type of recovered memories. It of course created a projection cycle that was quite intense. Yeah, I was really concerned. Focus was on my wife and uh, my kid. I continue to live in my life. It was very traumatic on my wife, and that was the primary concern, was her well-being. To many mothers, their children's apparent abuse seems to have been deeply personal. Here's Debbie Nathan, the journalist you heard in previous episodes. Marriages broke up, or that relationships were severely strained by the fact that women became much more involved in advocacy for their children around these cases. But, you know, People who'd actually had this happen to them when they were children are women for the most part. And um, so I think that, I think these cases triggered, uh, they triggered some, you know, pain and harm and suffering that women had had, had experienced when they were children. Fighting for their kids became a sort of proxy war, a way of fighting for themselves or their younger selves. One of them, Patricia Crowley, writes that she herself had been abused by an uncle and had not spoken up about it for years. She wasn't going to deny her child that chance. These kids had just shaken out very real memories of Kelly, like finding that iPhone under a blanket in your bed. Or had they? What was the truth about how all those kids felt about this incredibly strange experience? the memories that they may not have had themselves, but have become part of their lives. Hey, it's Payne, and I'm here to tell you that we're back with a brand new season of Up and Vanished, called Up and Vanished in the Midnight Sun. In this newest season of Up and Vanished, I'm investigating an unsolved missing persons case in Nome, Alaska, on the edge of the Arctic Circle. Florence Okpialik, an Alaska native, was last seen on August 31st, 2020, and I've spent the last year in Alaska trying to find out what happened to her, putting myself in the most dangerous positions I've ever been in. You don't want to miss this brand new season of Up and Vanished. It is by far the most intense investigation I've ever been a part of. 
from Tinderfoot TV, Up and Vanished in the Midnight Sun, is available right now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So throughout the story, the people I found myself thinking about the most are the children. They're adults now, most of them in their early to mid-40s, old enough to have children of their own. I've wondered whether any of them might look at their kids and see themselves at that age of three or four years old. Backpack bigger than their back, small hand in their parents' palm, flashing a gap-tooth smile. Do they still carry the scars from satanic daycare cases? Or have they moved on? The teachers from this preschool I went to were being accused of, you know, the worst things you could ever imagine. This is Kyle Zerpelo. Today, he's a buyer for a grocery store in Boise, Idaho. But 40-odd years ago, he was a student at the McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, where teachers were accused of taking children in secret tunnels beneath the school, forcing them to drink blood. By the time these accusations came out, Kyle had already graduated from preschool. He was eight at that point, one of the older witnesses to these supposed crimes. And actually, he has a pretty firm memory of how it all went down. You know, me and my siblings got in the car and my father and mother drove us. And uh, we were looked at by doctors. I looked fine. You know, there's no form of, no signs of anything happening to happen to me. Um, then we were like interrogated one-on-one with, with these therapists for hours on end. Um, they used... They used dolls. They, they would take the clothes off the dolls, and they were anatomically correct. They looked kind of like cheap Cabbage Patch dolls, but they had, like, you know, they were white. And they did have some brown ones, too. Um, they had hair, and they had, you know, private parts, even, you know, holes where they needed to be holes. And they would, like, act this stuff out right in front of us. For, and like I said, they did this for hours. and hours. I mean, it was brutal. They would just ask the same question over and over until they got the answers they wanted. And kind of from there, it just was, you know, being questioned and questioned and questioned over and over and over. So you can imagine like just sitting in this place all flipping day. It was just like such a terrible experience. Kyle had several younger siblings who had also gone to the preschool, some of them still actively in it. And he says he felt like he had some responsibility to speak up for them, too. So according to Kyle, he told the investigators what he thought they wanted to hear. It was really obvious what you were to do. You, you knew who your teachers were, and you just waited till you saw a picture of them, and you pointed them out. And you, you got 
you know, positive feedback from these things. So even as an eight-year-old, I, I didn't really need to be coached that much on what to do. You just kind of have a feeling based on, you know, the body language of the cops and the body language and tone of your parents on what, you know, you should or shouldn't say. And I did that and I did it well. I would say things like, um, you know, the teachers were mean to us. Uh, I remember one time just as a way to, to portray how these teachers were bad people in my mind as a child. I, I thought of something that would be really bad and what that thought was that when we scraped our knee or cut ourselves, they would put dirt on it before they put the Band-Aid over it. And I remember telling that story. I, I told stories about how they took us to churches for, you know, satanic rituals and things. Kyle says that from the get-go, these stories were complete and utter fiction. I, I, I lied about all these things, just crazy stories that I had concocted in my own head. So it was like me telling stories. I would think of something that I thought would be something they wanted to hear, but that there's no way that ever happened to me. I always had fun everything. My mom kept all our artwork. We had literally files of art and projects that we did when we were at this preschool. And mm -hmm. I loved looking at them. You know, I thought they were cool. They was, you know, super creative, the things they did and helped us, you know, do and bring home to our parents. Still, Kyle was brought in to testify in front of a grand jury. The whole process was pretty intimidating, to say the least. Honestly, I didn't really know other than the fact that they were just going to start asking me questions. And I had gone through all this a million times before. So I assumed I was just going to be asked questions about similar things and just repeat what I had been saying before. One of the stories that uh, the prosecutor was asking me about in the grand jury was a story that I had told the police about how we flew in an airplane to a, a church and um he went through the whole timeline and he's explaining to me how if this was true my parents would have had to pick me up from school at roughly like five o'clock in the evening or something and, and he's like is this true or is this a lie and i just remember thinking oh crying and i'm i'm gonna go to jail or something and i i broke down i started crying and uh the judge called for recess I mean, I literally told my mom, like, cried out to her that none of this happened when I was eight years old. And I say, none of this stuff happened. I'm lying about all of it. And she said that everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. She didn't believe me. Mm -hmm. On the day she died, she did not believe. These parents had the best intentions. They were trying to do what was right for their kids, trying to listen to them. But at least in the case of Kyle, it didn't end up helping him. I'm a really good poker player, but everyone is playing poker. You know what I mean? It's not hard to lie. Everybody lies. This whole thing that has affected me in a way that I've mastered the art of discernment. I, I, I know that, that there's liars all over the place, and, and that's how people get ahead in life, is, is they lie. I don't believe anything. I either know or I don't know. I don't believe anything. This has left Kyle in a sort of epistemological muddle. Kyle's perspective, his philosophy, seems to be that there is no reality. There is only what humans can see, and then what they can convince themselves is real. 
So perhaps it shouldn't be surprising that he's become pretty conspiracy-minded and really distrustful of authority. It made me resent authority because they let me down. This has given me a thing called discernment, what's happened to me in my past. What it has done is enabled me to try and figure shit out, so to speak. So I either figure it out or I don't. And if I don't, I sure as heck don't trust someone just because they said it. They lie to us. They lie to us in school. They lie to us in government. They lie to us in medicine. It's all lies Mm -hmm. to take our money. In the absence of being able to trust the world, he's decided to retreat somewhat. I don't really have a, um, a media presence, like a social media presence. I don't do any of that. I don't have an email. Even though Kyle says he made it all up from the beginning, he's not so sure about his siblings. I've talked to him after the fact many times. And they would always say the same thing. They would always say, you know what, they, they don't really honestly remember one way or another whether it did or didn't. Whether the abuse had ever actually happened almost stopped mattering. It became a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. The snake eating its tail, a horrible Ouroboros of abuse. One of my brothers says something kind of profound. And he tells me it doesn't matter whether it did or it didn't happen because we had to live a life as if it did even though it didn't really happen or it didn't happen to me and it probably didn't happen to my brothers and sisters, we we had to kind of live like it did and, and experience things as if it did. And it, it affected us somewhat like, like as if it really did happen. This is a very postmodern idea, of course, that it doesn't even matter if something happened or not. What counts is the teleological endpoint, the traumatized child. Whether the perpetrator was Kelly, the well-meaning investigators, or the collective fervor of the parents. And for Kyle and his siblings, they had to play that part for years. Yeah, we all went to therapy, years of therapy. The kind of therapy where you go in a room and play with toys and do drawings, and they just analyze you and you know, ask you a few questions here and there. The Maplewood father's child was not one of them. Here's Vanessa talking to him again. Yeah, I mean, did he have a ton of therapy? None. Actually, none. Why? I don't know. We just handled it ourselves. But it did quite well, frankly. I thought uh, recuperating from the situation. He had his bad times and moments. You know, he's successful. He got his college uh, education. He's on his own. He's doing quite well. No long-term damage from my point of view. But certainly he had short-term damage. There were major behavioral changes during this time. Yes, we know something has happened in retrospect and looking back. So there's no doubt that it happened. What were the behavioral changes? Temperament, it changes in temperament. And um, crying that he did not want to go there and mom, that kind of stuff. No more, I can't, I can't say it. There was no doubt in our mind that it that occurred after the fact. So what do you want people to know? about this situation, who never heard of it before. Is it like evil can exist out there and you gotta be careful? Or like, what's the big lessons to take away? Yeah, you know, you think you're trusting people who are taking care of things and your trust can be misplaced. I've learned that lesson myself. The other aspects of life, but uh, there's a great deal of evil out there. Tremendous amount. After Kelly's case, Debbie Nathan went on to write a book about the satanic panic, 
about this alleged battle between good and evil. Children in Western culture, probably every culture actually, but certainly in Western culture, are considered innocents. They are innocents, right? They have not sinned yet very much, if at all. And women are not innocent. Women are very suspect because of their irrationality and their hypersexuality. You know, men have to be protected from women's endless desires and wiles, but children are innocent. And so children became a very, very valuable piece for women for the fight for democracy and safety for women because women, when they were raped, nobody believed them because they were grown up. No conservative politician, no fundamentalist Christian was gonna argue that children are not innocent. Debbie says this highly galvanizing idea of innocent children being violated dates back to the Bible. The Romans accused the Christians of killing babies. You know, this idea of our most innocent people, our future, our children, you know, being violated. What's the worst violation you can do? Sex, sexual violation. And who are the most evil people? So the most evil people, are they changed at any given time. I mean, back in the 1980s, they were people that wanted your kid to be in public daycare. Today, a whole new panic over sexual abuse has sprung up, and it bears remarkable similarities to the satanic panic. It's like Pizzagate, where you have high-status people accused by, by you know, conspiratorial right-wingers of being involved in satanic pedophilia. So you have like Hillary Clinton being accused of this. It, the sense is that the people who believe in that stuff are now low status, and the people that they're accusing are high status. Whereas before, in the 80s and 90s, the people accused were low status, and the people making the accusations and fomenting them were high status people. So that's been a big switch. As for Kelly, Debbie's relationship with her had soured slightly after Dorothy Rabinowitz, the establishment journalist, moved in. When Kelly would give interviews, she'd say that the first journalist that ever questioned this was Dorothy Rabinowitz, and that was really hurtful to me. I was very upset that she was rewriting history. Years later, we actually became friends. I did not feel that I was friends with her the whole time I was working on the case, but I find her to be a very interesting person now. Kelly? She's just still trying to figure out what it all means for her, personally. I know we don't often talk about how we get our reporting for the show, but to talk to Kelly, Vanessa traveled to Pittsburgh, to Kelly's home, with a young staffer, Allie, who helped on this trip with the microphones. And while they were there, talking to Kelly, Kelly often brought up Allie in her stage of life. Yes. Vanessa and Allie. Allie, nice yes. to meet you. Nice probably you. 23. I yes. am 24. It's very close. <laughs> I have a 23-year-old. You're so very good at that. Can so, um, <laughs> I get coffee? Or? We have some yeah, bottles, I too. Like a bubble, and something about Allie seems to stick with Kelly. Okay, my daughter, as a, she's a ballet, she, there, she's graduated, my eight year old just graduated, and she, she's a wonderful girl. She's a, she's a ballet, she dances in Pittsburgh, and you just mm. look a lot like her. And of course, Kelly was 23 when she was accused at We Care. I really was consumed with being a 23 year old person. I really didn't deeply contemplate, um, you know, get consumed with what am I going to do with my life. She kept turning to Allie, looking at her, as though Allie might be reminding her of her own 23-year-old self. I was young. I was very idealistic. She was constantly swapping the U's and I's, alternately putting herself in Allie or her kids' places. It was almost like she was wondering, what could her life have been like if this had never happened? But this is what happened.
She was the witch. And not that long ago, she went to Salem for a day of contrition, an event where over 100 people gathered to reflect on witch trials, past and present. There were parents and teachers accused of satanic ritual abuse, and journalists like Debbie Nathan, and other famous defendants like Ray Buckley from the McMartin trials. actually got a hand signed copy from Arthur Miller of The Crucible. It was a mixed bag because it's like the whole Salem and the, the people that actually are like, we're here, we're good witches. And you know, and I'm like, well, that's not my crowd. When we talk to Kelly, we're sitting in her kitchen nook just outside of Pittsburgh. It's the early afternoon and the light is beginning to creep around the edges of the windows, smiling its way towards sunset. She's sitting next to a small white piano that is up against a wall nearby, similar to the one I imagine she played for the kids. Kelly's perspective, the fingerprint on the lens she's trying to view her life through, is one of healing. But since her case was overturned 30 years ago, none of the children or parents involved have ever reached out to her. I want to say that again, not one. She hopes to hear from them before she dies, just one of them, to sit down and talk about whatever shadowy memories, perceptions and imperceptions they both share. That, I, I do hope for that for them. I really do. And the best part of me, I do. And it is hard not to hope that for them too. Next time on Infamous. You may call your next witness. Your Honor, we'd like to call Gwyneth Paltrow. And that's when you were furious and said you skied directly into my effing back Sorry. at the top of your lungs. Yes, I did. Okay. I apologize for my bad language. And he has deterred you from enjoying the rest of what was a very expensive vacation. Well, I lost half a day of skiing. Infamous is a production of Sony Music Entertainment and Campside Media. Shoshi Shmulovitz is our managing producer and editor. This series was executive produced by Vanessa Gregoriadis, Natalie Robamed, and Paysetter Productions. Produced by Lily Houston-Smith and associate produced by Julia K. Slavine, with help from Emma Simonoff. Max Perry is our consulting producer. Additional field recording by Ali Haney. Voice acting by David Eichler and Lily Houston-Smith. Amber Devereaux sound designed these episodes, and they were recorded by Ewan Lai Tremuen. We have changed children's names and used these books as reference. Naptime by Lisa Manchel, Satan's Silence by Debbie Nathan and Michael Snedeker, and Not My Child by Patricia Crowley. Campside Media's executive producers are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. Thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, Sabina Mara, and Destiny Dingle. If you enjoyed Infamous, please spread the word and tell a friend. <laughs>